Thank you, snowboarding. Thank you, snowboarding. Thank you, snowboarding. Thank you, snowboarding. snowboarding. Hey friends, welcome back to Thank You Snowboarding in association with the Snowboard Asylum. Uh, It's a podcast that is delving into UK snowboard culture, telling the stories from the first handmade boards on the sides of hills in Scotland to the current world champion, 16-year-old Mia Brooks. And to do that, we basically interview someone different every week, someone who's had a part to play, whether as a sponsored rider or an industry professional or someone who helped create a scene or a culture. So the feedback so far has been great. Um, After last week's episode with Stuart Duncan, a guy called Adrian Corrigal got in touch. And Adrian is the cover star of the first ever Snowball GK magazine. And he was saying that he'd just cleared out his mum's house and actually found the exact outfit that he wore on that cover. So I'm going to be going visiting him this week and we're going to try and recreate that somehow. And I think that'll be really cool. So yeah, there's been lots of good feedback, so I appreciate that. We'll tell you more at the end how you can get involved. And this week we're going to be speaking to Becky Moore. She was, as I coined the phrase during the interview, part of snowboarding's power couple in its formative days. She was in a relationship with uh, Neil McNabb, who went on to become a famous, well, famous, relatively well-known big mountain guide. And Becky has forged herself a life out in Morzine, running a ski school and has just recently reconnected with one of her old sponsors, Nitro. Got a couple of new boards and she is frothing for some snowboarding this winter. So it's a really interesting conversation, this one. There's a load more about her career that I didn't know. And she's just, she's a really, she's got a good energy. That's the word I'm that's the phrase I was trying to find I really enjoyed this conversation it was really fun lots of good stories and uh, just it's quite interesting and to find to talk to somebody who's literally made their life on the side of a mountain and still does so and as after sort of going back to skiing for many years has sort of found snowboarding again and the joy in it so yeah I really hope you enjoy this one Becky Morthouse here we go yeah, it's interesting listening to you talking to Ed, obviously, how the stories of how people got into it. And it's only now looking back that you can see or really understand. Because I don't think I understood at the time how young snowboarding actually was. Yeah. I don't think I appreciated, even though it was really obvious by the fact that you couldn't buy kit in English shops because <laughs> they didn't have it. Well, I guess I guess when I got into it, you could, or like it was becoming okay. more and more of it, like sort of you know there was SS twenty and there was Grand Prix and places like that. So so well sort of on that, how did you find snowboarding? Like what drew you into it? Pure accident. So I, unlike a lot of UK snowboarders, I came from snow sports anyway because I was a skier. And I was already teaching skiing. So that had taken me to three seasons working in Scotland. Right. And then a season working in Italy. So I was already snow-based and had already made that decision. That's what I was going to do. I didn't have a skate background at all. Um, And I had this little Argentinian friend who had a snowboard. Right. Got to the end of the season was a bit bored with skiing, kind of, I was in that process of going through all the exams and just working to make enough money to get through and all the rest of it. Yeah. And uh, I had to go on this snowboard. What I loved about it was it was incredibly frustrating because I could not do it. <laughs> and that to me was any other snow sport, any other ski related sport, you can do it. You can put telemark skis on and you can kind of do it. Yeah. You put cross country skis on and you can kind of do it. Yeah. And it just baffled me. I, I could not work out how to make this thing work. Um, eventually sort of worked out how to make it work. What did your setup look like? Like what sort of? Oh, it was an old Sims boot, a Sims board with um, hard boot bindings. So I stuck my Reikley uh, three oh, yeah. piece yeah. ski boots in it. The green That's and black what I was ones. Riding. 
Yes. Yes. Or mine might have had yellow tongues, but essentially, yes. Flex on Black comps. Yes, flex on comps. One of my favourite <laughs> boots ever. I know. Why did they ever change them? Oh, I tried to relive them with a pair of Del Bello um, Christmas, but I couldn't get them to work the same. I couldn't get them to work the same. I've not thought about flex on comps for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. This paper was worth it. Just to relive a flex on comps. <laughs> um, but... Within a week of putting the snowboard on, I'd had a fall on my toe edge and basically broken my elbow. Oh, shit. Broken in my humerus. So I went back to the UK and bought a snowboard. (laughs) 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 As you do. Uh, With a broken elbow. Pretty much. Which was a Mistral, something like a 155, again, with plate bindings. Where would you have bought that that from? That was from what for me is, was um, recently lamented because they've packed up now. Um, Oh, my goodness. I can even remember the address. Um, Ski Plus in Chelmsford. So I'm Chelmsford, Essex, born and bred. Uh, Now, I wondered whether, because I I was working at the board store for a little while and I think you came by one day or something or there was some reason and I saw you in this and I always, it was in Brentwood. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And as that well as sense. like Morzine and the Alps, when I think about where you're from in the UK, I always thought Essex, but I didn't really know why. Yeah. yeah so as a kid growing up, Warley was my local dry slope. Oh, right. Oh, well, and without without the hours on the dry slope, I never would have become a ski instructor because that right. gave me the hours and hours and hours. And I started teaching on the dry slope as well. Yeah. And without that, I never would have had a life on snow. That's amazing because that was that was my home for about nine months as well. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? And that's what was making me giggle to myself as you were talking to Ed. So many crossed paths that you know by yeah, sliding doors, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Because I sort of feel like I never, I was never really sort of a a part of the scene. I thought I was, I was always on the periphery, but then you talk to everyone and you realize, well, actually I was probably as much in it as anybody else was. <laughs> but that was my point at the beginning. I absolutely don't think that we understood what that time was. Yeah. We didn't understand that if we were 50 people at a British champs, we were pretty much the only 50 people in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There wasn't like tears of how to get to the British champs. <laughs> if you were at the British champs, that was it. You were in the scene. Yeah. And um, I, I can be quite antisocial. So I, I'm not always the best. Just go up to people and start talking to them. Yeah. So there's a lot of people who, I know, but I've never really spent that much time with. So, yeah, but like you say, it, it was a small group of people, so everyone does know who everyone is, whether they know them really well or or not so much. Yeah, well, I guess you rose up the sort of you rose up the levels to be sort of one of the leading lights, I guess. Certainly be in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I turned up at my first British champs, which I. I think may have only been the second. So I'm well, thinking Andorra. Was that, was that Andorra? Andorra 92. Right, th- they'd okay. had one in Scotland the year before, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if they'd had more than one in Scotland already. I don't know. That's a sort of slightly before my time, really. Hmm. That was just when I started picking up Snowboard UK that I think that I was starting to sort of know about competitions okay. and there was actually a scene. Yeah, so... This is when I was with Neil, the wonderful Neil McNabb, and he was really itching to do competitions. So we'd been working in Italy, in Livigno, and uh, we'd heard about this competition going on in Andorra. And I know the Alps generally is quite small, but nowhere is as far from Andorra as Livigno is. (laughs) It took us days. It literally took us two days to drive there. We knew nobody. We had no idea what was going on. We just pitched up, did this competition, and by the end of it, we were sponsored by Burton. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you fucking do it, isn't it? Just turn up, throw much. down, and then like, yeah, I'll just take a Burton sponsorship out of this. Come on. I, I, we, I remember it really clearly. We were sat 
next to the ditch that was serving us as a half pipe. Yeah. And uh, was talking to Johnny Weeks. Johnny Weeks. Yeah. And he said, uh, you know, how do you feel about riding for Burton? We were like, oh, that's interesting. Who would we speak to? We were like, me? (laughs) Okay. I'm in. (laughs) And that's where it all started. So there's a funny story, right? And I'm not going to give it away, but on my brother's episode... Right. He's got a being sponsored by Johnny Weeks story as well. I think there's quite a few. That <laughs> I think so. I think he was up for sponsoring everybody, wasn't he? Yeah, we were up to football team numbers <laughs> at one point and not five aside. <laughs> but then, of course, being involved with Burton at that time, I had a pair of Burton Megaflex hard boots. And I remember meeting Darren Williamson, who was already sponsored by Burton at that point. Yeah. And he was fuming because he'd only managed to get one single boot, which was a sample, <laughs> not even a whole pair of boots. What would you it wear that like, on your front foot or your back? Which, which way would remember. you go? How do you choose? <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, we did. We grew and grew and grew. But then Burton had all that problem with copywriting. Um, oh, yes, of course. Either that summer or the next summer, as all their boot stock arrived, we got ourselves jobs with a little Dremel actually grinding out the Burton <laughs> logo out of the sole of the boot because they weren't allowed to be sold <laughs> in the UK with that Burton logo on. Burton menswear had a bit of an issue with them, didn't they? They had a little bit of a problem with it as well, Jesus yes. Jesus Christ. So there you go. That's how you earn a living as a snowboarder. Grind logos off hardware so i feel like we've jumped forward quite a lot how so you met neil um doing a season uh yeah actually doing basie exams okay and on a it was on a weekend off there was this guy going snowboarding and i'm like wow and i had bought my first board by then i had my my mistral with my hard boot set up yeah Mm, and i very shyly went uh do you want to go snowboarding (laughs) He's like, all right then, all right then, and that was it. I can picture him being approached by you, I can imagine. (laughs) Um, But had it not been for Neil, I probably never would have even approached half of the things that I did. It was his keenness, his desire to go and compete and get involved with stuff that initially I was very much the tag along and then actually realised that I could do it. So, yeah, it just carried on. But that's, that's where it started. That would have been about 1991-ish. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you two quickly became like, I've got some notes here. I've put you down as the, <laughs> the, the British snowboarding power couple. It was a little bit like that. It was like Neil and Bex became one word. Yeah. Well, and you were cleaning up as well, weren't you? I mean, you certainly... Yeah, I mean, he walked away with everything in the men's category and I walked away with everything in the girls' category for about four years straight. Did you ever want to um, sort of... Did you ever compete sort of internationally? Yes. So from that, I... There there was no sort of middle ground. There was the British champs and normally you would compete in your home nation series series. So they would be, for the French, there was the French Cup. Yeah. And as you rose up the ranks of the French Cup, you would then fight for a place on the World Cup, yeah. which was then run by the um, International Snowboard Federation, the ISF. But we didn't have that. So we pretty much were able to get wildcard entries directly into World Cup. Yeah. And that's a bit of a jump, going from... <laughs> not really having a competitive background to suddenly finding yourself at the top of the half pipe at the world championships. <laughs> like, oh, hello, <laughs> dropping, next. How did um, you get on? I ended up sixth overall in the Europeans. Wow. Ninth overall in the Worlds. So top 20 in slalom top 10 in overall. So I've always considered myself a jack of all trades. So I would ride slalom, giant slalom, pipe, border cross. Freestyle events were never my forte, but I could do enough to to gain an overall. And actually it's quite niche. There are very few riders that, 
you've got people like Michelle Taggart who would ride overall and absolutely smash it, but there was no depth in riders who would compete in everything. And that really worked in the num <clears throat> worked well in terms of numbers for me, so I could get uh, results on the board that meant that sponsorship developed really. Yeah, so yes, when... I competed in World Cup for three or four years. I didn't know that. Mm. That's quite amazing. And then where to go? Where to go? Um, what got you out of like? When did you decide not to do that anymore? And why? When it became, when it was going to go to Nagano, to the Olympics, right? I had a choice to make. I could either stay in for another one or two seasons to aim for Nagano, or I could come out. And I think by then I was, I was tired. I was tired of traveling. I was tired of not competing as such, but I was tired of being a complete nomad with no resources. <laughs> yeah, what what did that look like? Because there was um um we've already talked to Melanie about like when she got into it and what sort yeah, of structures so she, there were. So there kind of could have been hardly anything for you guys at that time, surely. No. So Melanie and Leslie pretty much walked into the space that I left. Right. It, it was almost seamless. So yeah. they would have competed in the Brits probably in 96, 97, may have been the year before, but it was certainly 97 was, it's going to sound really silly, was the first year that I didn't win everything. <laughs> I wasn't taking it overly seriously. <laughs> um, and then that was ideal because that those two as a pair worked really well in terms of sorting their lives out, putting everything on a on a really good level. But even up to then, something that worked really well for me was the media was really hungry from from 92, let's say from 92 to 97, that five-year period, media were really hungry for anything snowboarding. Right. So Bored yeah. Stupid appeared on TV. Oh, yeah, of course. Was a biggie. And they were turning up at World Cup events. So for them to have some Brits to talk to at these international events was perfect. Yeah. They would also turn up to places like Tamworth. So they were really able to dial into sort of the UK side of the scene. Yeah, yeah totally. And I think for, for me and Neil, certainly, it was a really good connection for them. So we got quite a lot of coverage there. All sorts of magazines wanted to know about snowboarding, whether it was health and fitness, girls' magazines, teen magazines. So it meant that we were eminently marketable. TV stuff, Saturday morning TV, Nickelodeon. There was so much stuff available to do. It made you really marketable. And once we got management behind us, so we had um, a, a company called SSL who are basically – sports management company and they arranged sponsorship and they arranged a lot of the media stuff my advantage was because I was a little bit older reasonably eloquent I could be the snowboarding face that they wanted but I could also communicate which worked well for tv and for interviews and stuff sure. so most people they were talking to at the time they were getting things like guys like it's just like really rad man in it <laughs> um so I was perfect for them. They they just loved it. Yeah. So I think that Go on. I, I just think that not made life easy, but made getting sponsorship and actually earning money feasible. So they lined up, I had sponsorship. So I was actually getting income from Red Bull. I was getting oh, a wow. monthly. You must have been quite income. early on in like the Red Bull gig then. Yeah. Did you have to wear like literally head to foot Red Bull logos like they do now? Well, a little bit. If you look back to old stuff, I have got Red Bull patches, but yeah. I have got one slalom board, which I can't remember this being like organized for me. I can't remember how it came about. And I think maybe this happened through SSL. It certainly wasn't me making it happen, but this was done in the factory they took out a patch on the base yeah. and put on oh, no, this was Sega. So I was sponsored by Sega as well. 
And I have a Sega Mega Drive patch inlaid into the base of one of my slalom boards. And that board I still have. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. So Sega, it's slightly pointless given that a slalom board doesn't really sort of come off the ground very much. No, I know. Unless something's gone remarkably wrong. <laughs> I think it's that moment, isn't it, where you're standing for the photo yeah, with it. Yeah, yeah. Like, Hopefully you're on the podium and you get some photos yeah. with it. Yeah, that's a lot. That's so a... basically, sponsorship-wise, Red Bull, Sega, they're two pretty major companies. Pretty big pocket, deep pockets. Snowboarding. Yeah. Huh? Pretty deep pockets, those were... guys. Yes, yeah. And then there were photo incentives. So every time a photo was placed somewhere, that was from, as I once I left Burton and moved into Nitro, that's kind of, all of that combined together is what got me from country to country, from race to race. So is it just enough to kind of pay your way, not enough to kind of, yeah. you wouldn't call it a living as such? No, no, you certainly weren't living. You were, I was very much going back to parents in between seasons, Yeah. working in between seasons. Um, we wouldn't always pay for accommodation, sometimes just sleep in the van Everything was done Jesus. super, super on the cheap, but yeah. it was paying the race entries. It was paying the ski passes. It was paying, yeah. But I guess that isn't, I mean, that way of life or that way of doing it probably isn't even an option anymore, is it? Or is it? I don't know. Um, no, because you, there was such a lack of competitions. Strictly speaking, we should have been at home doing our home nation like a regional comp, yeah. I suppose now the story would be you'd do a dry slope comp or a snow dome comp and then go to some sc Scottish competitions and then maybe go into some lower level European stuff. But there wasn't that infrastructure. Yeah. It was World Cup or nothing. Well, nothing. So, yeah, but, that's but, where we went. I guess what I, I wonder what it is now, like how someone does someone just have to get really, really good and then turn up at comps and sort of there's, there, there still doesn't say, I don't know about, I don't think so, but there isn't that sort of structured pathways in, is there? Or is there? I don't know. I don't know about the pathways, but you look at how freestyle skiing and freestyle snowboarding is now making a mark in the Olympics, in World Cup, in. Yeah. There's there seems to be an elite program. GB Snowsports seems to be working for the high end folks. I don't know about the the pathways there, but I presume there's still a healthy dry slope. There's still a healthy Scottish scene. There must still be a healthy snowdome scene to a certain extent. Yeah, I think. Well, I think so. I'm gonna hopefully gonna be finding out a bit more about that as I do these interviews. Yeah. Really, it's quite interesting. Because there was that whole well, school other... tours thing with Soul Sports, wasn't there? And there was like a real grassroots push, but that sort of obviously yeah. didn't make enough money or whatever it was. That's the thing. To be able – most stuff like that, grassroots stuff. So if I think back to my history in skiing, yeah, dry slope, that was all run by volunteers. It was all parents yeah. who were there. Yeah doing stuff week in, week out so that their kids could go slide up and down this dry slope. I presume at grassroots there has to be that, yeah. that kind of scene still going on. I don't know. I'm not in the UK enough really to know to know too much. There will be others that, that know. No, that's a nice segue though. So you're in Morzine and have been for quite yes. some time. Yes. Did you move there after you sort of finished after you hung up your slalom board? No, do you know what? That was quite serendipitous as well. So, first British champs, 92, in Andorra. And then Ian and Jill Trotter were running a company called Chalet Snowboard. Chalet Snowboard, yeah. And they moved to Avoriaz in 93. And they very kindly offered, uh, um, offered us to use their base to be able to compete from. Smooth. So we basically moved into a cupboard in their house. <laughs> <laughs> a linen cupboard, to be strictly truthful. Um, but it meant I could stay in Europe, travel to and from races, and from that point, so from 93 
it became a base to keep coming back to. And actually, Morzine as a place, even back then, had a small little cohort of expats, and it made it a really easy place to come back to. Yeah. You know, whether it was summer, winter, there was there was always somebody around that made it a good place to and a safe place to land and be at home for a little while. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking about your thinking about your linen cupboard existence and yeah well just what was what was it that kept you sort of like yeah this is all right this is this is a good situation I'm gonna like this is what I want to do like where what was sort of motivating you back then it is interesting isn't it because I was doing okay as a ski instructor yeah why would you you know I was paying for my winters I think I was bored of it I was burnt out um what was it that made me want to keep doing this thing that put no money in my pocket and made every day a struggle? That's what you're trying to say, isn't it? In a nutshell. <laughs> or what is it about snowboarding? Like what, what's the yeah. thing? What makes you want to do that? Cause I mean, I've lived, I think we, I've lived in some shit, real shitty places <laughs> and it doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem to matter. No. And to be honest, I'd go and stand um, them now to go snowboarding. Do you know what I mean? So, Yes. What is the, what um, is the thing, or what is it for you? For me, it was about learning something from scratch again, being inspired by learning. Obviously, enjoying what I was doing, and I'd love to have a really good reason, but it gave me enough of a buzz that I wanted to go out and do it again tomorrow. Yeah. And then I wanted to go and do it the day after. It's okay. That's, it seems like a good enough it's, reason. It's a hard one, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I've got any more than that when I'm talking about it. I mean, I can infuse about snowboarding and how amazing it is, the sensations that you get from it, the situations you can be in, the people that you will meet, the camaraderie and the support, the fact that, you know, when you're snowboarding with a little crew and you're all lining up for a side hit, nobody leaves until everyone's hit that hit. Whereas skiers, even when they ski together as a group, tend to just do their own thing. And don't get me wrong, I'm not necessarily talking about a bunch of little um, free ride or freestyle skiers. They probably behave in the same way that we did back then. But you were definitely all doing the sport together. You were finding lines together. You'd see someone go and find a little slash on a knuckle somewhere and you'd go, oh, yeah, oh, I've just seen that. Or you'd done the And you'd be you'd be experiencing how they were seeing the mountain as much as how you were seeing the mountain. Yeah. That, that was a very engaging process. Okay. You just said about sort of situations it puts you in, Yeah, like, you know, the situations it puts you in. I want to know, obviously you sort of did all right out of sponsorship. You probably had some good opportunities open to you. Where did you, where's, where did you find yourself that you just thought, hang on a minute, how's this happened? Through snowboarding. Like, where's snowboarding taken you that you just thought, Jesus Christ, how am I here? <laughs> well, I found it quite interesting when Ed was talking about going to Alaska because I didn't know that he'd done that. Right. But I also took myself to Alaska. So um, have you ever come across Ross Woodall, photographer? No. Um yeah, I may, I may know the name. I don't know. Uh, so Ross, I had done a photo shoot with him in Alpduez. And... Just as a note, that's the first place I ever strapped a snowboard on. Is it? Yeah. There you go. So, do you know, there's a section, I don't know it really well, but there's a section down the back of one area and it's just called, nicknamed the Avalanche of Oz. And it just right. always rolls and it always avalanches. We've got some amazing shots down there. And I have some amazing photos from that, that weekend that we spent there. And he said, Bex, um, I'm going to Alaska in, in April. Um, I mean, if you wanted to come, if you can get yourself a ticket, you, you just come if you want to come. So, what, okay, year, then. What, what year was this? think it's about 96-ish. Okay, so sort of after your competing days. Yeah. Um, might even been 90s. 
between 96 and 98 it must have been yeah so i took myself to alaska and i arrived in uh anchorage thinking oh that's quite a long way to valdez isn't it <laughs> and there was know, some other it? guy in the airport yeah yeah <laughs> some other guy in the airport with um Oh, no, I'd flown from Alaska into Anchorage. Right. Um, into, from Anchorage, flown down into Valdez, and there was some other guy with a, a big rolly bag of snowboard stuff. Yeah. We just looked at each other and went, Valdez, taxi? Yeah, okay. <laughs> we just shared a taxi into <laughs> Valdez. And the very loose arrangement, remembering this is pre-mobile phones or course, even yeah. pages, we had no way of being in contact. Ross had just said, see you at the Totem Inn, which is a diner, on about the 11th or 12th of April. <laughs> that was it. Two-day just... window. Yeah, pretty much. So I just went there and ate pancakes and drank bad coffee until they turned up. And that was it. And that was one of those situations where I really felt, what exactly am I doing right now? <laughs> but it was amazing. Yeah, I spent the, the whole riding? week absolutely petrified. <laughs> They do say, don't they, that you just you, you whatever mountains you've seen, you're not quite ready for Alaska, the scale of it. Yeah, and it's not like there are many operations where you can pay to be taken and go and do some powder riding, and you have qualified mountain guides with you who will safety test the whole thing. They are responsible for your safety. Yeah. No, the the system here was you sign a disclaimer. Yeah. And if you want to get in a helicopter, you get in a helicopter. Um, there will be a guide with you, but that guide is a skier or a snowboarder who's out there for lifts. So there's someone who kind of knows the area a bit, um, but they're not, they're not guaranteeing your safety. They just know their way from A to B. They, it's their hometown. They ride there a lot. They'll show you the way. Yeah. And that you take your chances. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you got some sort of Vietnam vet behind the stick on the yeah. on the helicopter. Something like that. Amazing. Hey man, I got a free ride. <laughs> but we survived. Have you got the good. shots from that? Have you got any of like have you still got any of your sort of old footage or photos or anything? Do you keep a have you got a scrapbook? Well or was your parents I do. With a scrapbook? No, 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 I have it. You've got it. Um, which I dug out the other day. So um, there was a bit of a story behind it as well. All of this was back on film, pre-digital. Yep. All of his film got destroyed at the lab. Oh, man. <laughs> so I have a little bit of stuff. So he was shooting with a, another colleague of his, um, Harrow. What's Harrow's first name? So there's a little bit of stuff from him. But, yes, I have. I have my book of everything. Okay, you'll, you'll have to describe what we're looking at because this is audio only. <laughs> just, just every single, every single flyer, magazine, um, every single piece of media that we ever got to do. Yeah, how is it looking back at some of that stuff? Has it been a while? Yeah, it's. I'll show you this one, which this is from the Desalp one and it's Look basically that. It's a that is a beauty isn't it oh man you'd be so stoked it's with shot. that it's maybe 20 20 odd foot yeah easily. not my everyday occurrence <laughs> but i just look at that and went did i did i did i do that <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I did. before photoshop so you must have done <laughs> oh yeah it's way before photoshop <laughs> You can um, you can absolutely prove that these were real. Um, it's an amazing memory. Pictures of old British British snowboard championship after parties and yeah, stuff. after parties. <laughs> Let's not go Sheffield just yet. No, were you at the riot? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. So that made me that made me giggle. <laughs> When you were talking to Ed about that as well. I remember the next morning, Eddie Spearing being very sort of dour about it because it had apparently it had made the Radio 1 news. 
And I think he saw that as like, what a dark day for British snowboarding. But I just thought this is fucking the best thing ever. Honestly, I can't wait to hear more about it. Well, hopefully Eddie's, uh, Eddie's, Eddie's kind of contemplating whether to do the podcast or not. Is he? I think that might be why. Oh, bless him. I mean, none of that would have happened without Ed. I know. Not, not, not the Sheffield thing in general, but snowboarding. And he was just such a catalyst for bringing people together and calling it a British champs and saying, come on, let's do something. Yeah. Yeah. He's a real, he's one of the linchpins. Him, like him, Jeremy Sladen. Oh, Jeremy. So back to Andorra, 92. Go on. Jeremy is the first person that I actively remember speaking to. So right. I got to the bottom of the slalom and I was ahead by a ridiculous amount of seconds from whatever was going on. And he came up to me and said something really nice, actually. And I just remember that was the first person that had actually stopped and spoken to me out of all all of everything that was going on. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Oh, Jez. Bless him. Yeah. He's still in the game, very much yeah. in the game. Mm. Um. Well, they all head out to um, the TSAD like Shred Week in Morsing at the end of the season, don't they? Yeah, which I've never really got massively involved with. I've always, but maybe, <clears throat> maybe it is time to stick my head in and come and say hello. I think it is time. I'm, I, if I can get the time off my family, I think I'm going to go. Go out for a visit. Yeah. Well, let's do it. Let's so then, so we're we're in Morsing now. So now we're talking yes. about Morsing. So um, mm. your life in Morsing now, sort of paint that picture. Was in now. Yeah. So I am co-director of a ski school, which yep. is called British Alpine Ski School. We are Bass. So Bass runs in Morzine and Leger and also in Avorias. We are predominantly ski. We do teach snowboarding. I don't I was really say your 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 acronym's very much ski based, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't fancy sliding the extra S in there just to uh, <laughs> keep it real. <laughs> well, it's quite funny being a snowboard personality, but I don't really like teaching snowboard anymore. That's fair enough. I think you've done your it's time. Very high you? energy, very high physical effort. And there's a reasonable chance that people are going to hurt themselves. Yeah. So now it's very much something that I do because I want to do it. It's not part of my professional life. Although... I guess my move out of competition then led me into creating the the snowboard instructor pathway. That was the other thing that. Yeah, you were I quite heavily involved. Was it Basie or something? You got heavily involved in that, didn't you? Okay, so a quick synopsis of that story: the BSA, the British Snowboard Association, at the yep. time, yep. was running snowboard instructor courses which they were running basically on license from the Austrians. The Aust they, they'd gone and done the Austrian course and the Austrians had given them permission to deliver their uh, teaching progression to British instructors. Right. I was already a Basie instructor and British, British Association of Snow Sport Instructors wanted to find out whether they should be offering a snowboard qualification for their members. Yeah or whether they should recommend that members do this BSA qualification. So they sent Neil and myself to go and take the qualification. Yeah. Get an idea um, of whether it was worth its salt. Okay. We did the qualification. We came back and said, no, I think we could do better. And that's what we did. We created a snowboard teaching progression a teaching system um i then wrote it up into our basie manual which has yeah. since been you know it's, it's developed on from then but yeah basically created the first teaching system so i'm just going to draw a parallel there with so basically you i'm <laughs> being a bit flippant did you <laughs> right. did you usurp the BSA sort of qualification then? Sort of make it a bit irrelevant, or was that was that okay to use on dry slope? And I'm just drawing a parallel between the FIS 
yeah. and the ISF, only because you mentioned the ISF earlier, how the sort of FIS has sort of nudged, <laughs> eventually nudged, pushed everything out the way that was snowboard or run. Yes, I can see how the visual is on that, and it totally does look like that. But what you had was two very deeply involved to the bone snowboarders yeah. creating our system. Yeah, of course, yeah. We were just creating it under a different umbrella. Had the BSA had funds or the willingness to redevelop what they'd started with, but I think my personal feeling was they weren't ready to move away from it. They were very sure. invested in it and they didn't have a deep enough understanding of movement principles um some basic mechanics to see where things could change so we didn't even take that content as a starting point we just started again okay that's quite interesting what's the um kind of i don't what's the state of if you want to become an instructor now like what do you have to do or what's the process for anyone listening um, that might be interested in this yeah Again, it's something I've recently stepped away from. So I retired from being a trainer. So with Basie, you, you go up through levels. And then when you hold the highest qualification level in whatever discipline you do, whether that's ski, adaptive, um, Nordic or snowboard or telemark, you then can apply to become a trainer of instructors where you train and examine the other instructors. Yeah. When I first went into Basie, I initially became a snowboard trainer and then I flipped and crossed into becoming a ski trainer. Right. And I just stepped away and retired from that in 2022. So I'm just retired from training all of the training stuff. Yeah. Um, you can start in the UK. You can start on a snow dome. You can do a level one qualification in all of the different disciplines right. in the UK on a snow dome. It's really accessible. And our system is developed so that it is accessible for good re recreational performance, whether that's ski, snowboard, what have you. You don't have to be um, an ex-World Cup racer to be able to come in and then become a teacher. You can work your way up through the levels um, to be able to work in different places around the world. Some places are easier to work in than others. We have in instructors who go and work in Japan. We have instructors who go and work in New Zealand, Australia. Europe is a little bit tricky at the yeah, moment. I was going to say the French thing's got to always be a tough one, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it was working really well, especially probably more ski than snowboard, but there was a pathway Right. for snowboard so brexit has made that tricky um you would need to check with people who are more current than i am whether there is a current pathway but for a little while there certainly hasn't been a pathway to end up working in europe so there's a bit of a bottleneck in terms of what people can do and where they can end up yeah. um just tricky I guess on that you're you're fully like paid up member of french society i'm assuming mm. Yeah, so I've now lived in France 23 years. I'm fully French resident, fully French um, taxpayer. Yeah. The only thing I haven't done is my citizen, can't even say it, citizenship. But, yes, I'm fully – I can't think of the right word. I'm a fully legal resident in France. Yeah. With and my UK qualification. Right. So – yeah, because that was always that was always a thing about teaching. It seemed to be the French seemed to take particular umbrage to British people teaching on their mountains. Yeah, they um, there were a couple of things going on. One was the protectionism of not wanting foreigners coming in and taking their yeah. market share. Yeah, that completely changed once they made agreements, and for skiers, for sure. It was really easy. Once you got your top qualification, you legally were allowed to teach in France. Um, now that we are no longer European, they don't have to accept us in France. Because I am, um, because I was already declared in France and I'm a French resident, I have the right to work in France. 
even though I don't have a European passport. But at the moment, it's much easier for people that have European passports to work in France than it is. It's not impossible. You can get working visas. Yeah, it's just more um, a process than it used to be. Yeah. And I, I think it will get easier as time goes on, but it's definitely a bit of a hiccup. Yeah, I guess we're in the raw state of it at the moment, aren't we? But once mm. you know, hopefully a different like government come in, we'll be, everything will get a little bit better. Yeah. So um, before we sort of get... <laughs> Um, basically, I just want to, I mean, you've sort of devoted your life to the mountains. Mm. If I, if we're not sort of specifically about skiing or snowboarding, it certainly seems that your whole life has been living in the mountains or being around the mountains. What, what does it mean to you now? Like, where are you now with it? And what does snowboarding mean to you now? It's a really good question because for as I, as I look back, I was a skier initially. I went literally both feet in into snowboarding. I had a period of about seven or eight years where I didn't put skis on. Yeah. I was only snowboarding. And in that time, ski design changed. They kind of went, oh, what do these snowboards do? Oh, they turn really quickly. Let's make skis that do that. So but the time I tripped over skiing again, it was all new and it was all different. So I got that joy of learning back again because I had to completely adapt everything that I knew about skiing to make it work on this new equipment. Yeah. And the equipment was working in the way that my snowboards were working. So it became fun again. Then as I finished competing, and I was also working for Nitro in the UK. So as well as competing, um, I was working as brand manager for Nitro in the UK. So I was working within sales in the UK. Oh, I didn't know that you did that. I knew you rode. Yeah. Around. Yeah. So I swapped from Burton to Nitro in 94. Yeah. Immediately got involved with Surf Sales, who were the importer at that point That's of right, yeah. Nitro. Got involved with them. They had Duck Hine as well, which is an awesome brand. Sure thing. Um Got involved with helping with sales, uh, Soltex, like the sales shows and stuff like that. Got involved with going to the international sales conferences. So met the owners, met the board builders, went to the factory, Sweet. did all that kind of stuff. And even when I finished competing, I think I worked for them for a full year, just doing a full, just doing a few weeks out on snow teaching. And then coming back into the UK. And actually, <clears throat> I didn't end up that much better off when I was working full time in the industry <laughs> compared to when I was a rider. So I did eventually fall back into skiing, yeah. ended up setting up the ski school. And that became the first time that I was financially secure. Yeah. So that became the catalyst to, okay, now I can stop. I can just put down some roots. So work-wise, it was the place where I could earn a living. People-wise, Morzine and its area is a place where there was community. Yep. Oh, what more do you need? Community and earn a living. That was enough. That is enough. Yeah. And what's your split of time now between skis and snowboards? Um, for a while, it was ski only. Yeah. I didn't have anything else that I wanted to do in snowboarding. And then a few years ago, when I eventually wrapped up and finished everything with Nitro and I was fully back, I was fully crossed over into ski, I then threw, okay, this is another slight slight rabbit hole through daily mail ski magazine i was their snowboard editor so i would do their snowboard technique pages oh, right every day every week every month i did yeah. that for quite a few years right then talked myself into going to the ski test for them right. as part of their testing team um which then got me involved more with skiing, which made a transition. I ended up moving into Salomon for a ski as opposed to snowboard. Sure. Why, why did I go that route? Um, 
So I did actually get a board. Long story short, it's only been the last couple of years that I've had this little niggle that I thought I'd quite like to go snowboarding. I have a couple of friends here who I quite enjoy riding with. Right. And it's very low key. It's when I want. It's people that I laugh a lot with. Yeah. It's people that have no expectations. And it's really good fun. And actually just going on the mountain and being an absolute child for a couple of hours. <laughs> it's brilliant. I love it. So it's that. It's for me now, it's time away from work. It's time with my friends. And it's time when I can play. Perfect. I mean, that's it. That's that's it. There's only I, one. Honestly, you know, to be able to say thank you, snowboarding. It's a big part of why I'm here. It's a big part of why I can now go for a couple of hours in an afternoon with some friends and play stupid ground tricks and land on my head 10 times or maybe just go to the baby park for a couple of hours and just do circuits. And Surely on just... a big powder day, you've got to be thinking you're getting your board out, right? Uh, um, yeah. So the quiver is now growing back again, so I have my... <laughs> I have my free ride, proper, full on speedboard. You were just saying you were saying before that you've you've sort of hooked up with Nitro again. Yes. So I had bought. Is it still okay. the same guys doing it? Yes. Tommy Delago is the owner and original founder of Nitro. So I threw an email out to Tommy, <laughs> thinking, I mean, it could just go out into the ether yeah. and never hear anything but anyway he came back to me and went oh that's so amazing that you're getting back into snowboarding getting back to your roots love it and he hooked me up with the french guys so i went down to visit them at annecy and it took julian some of my old boards and we were talking a bit of snowboard history that I took him that Sick. one with the sega mega yeah, drive yeah, yeah, yeah. and we were talking about you know the good old days so i now have myself a little a little jibby board and I have my proper piece carvey powder board. So my quiver is becoming a quiver again. It will never be a hard boot quiver. <laughs> Those days are done. What happened to your mega flexes? Very good question. Absolutely no idea. Yeah. They probably God. shredded themselves to bits. <laughs> you should find them. I think people would probably offer you money for them on some Facebook group. But yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Speaking of offering money, last thing, yeah. um, you made a book, or you certainly had something to do with a book. Yes. And you know, you can buy that for the princely sum of £1.68 on Amazon. Boom! <laughs> so you what must be close called? to retirement, putting your feet it's up on all, that, like, on all that money. Yeah, I never got royalties for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I even realised I was writing a book until someone went, author, Becky Montas. Oh, really? Okay. Um Yes. Is it not called snowboarding or something? It's called snowboarding. That's it, mm. I think. It's kind of in the name, isn't it? Possibly snowboarding brackets extreme. Oh, yes. Has it not got Steve on the front? It has got Steve on the front. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, shout, out, shout out to Steve Bailey. Yeah, Steve Bailey. Um, there's, the, I think Mark Chester's in it as well. I think Martin. He's still at the game, isn't he, up at the snow domes? I've not bumped into him for a long time, actually. I only see. I think we're friends on Facebook. Not. I might. Yes. I may have never had a conversation with him, but we are friends on Facebook, and yeah. he is keeping it real at the domes. Good on you, Mark. Respect for that. <laughs> Massive respect for that. But yeah, Chris, I can't thank you enough. But honestly, snowboarding, I cannot thank you enough because you have been a massive and still are a massive part of my life. So there we go, Becky Morthouse. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. That was such a fun interview to do. If they're all like that, this job will be blessed for sure. So, yeah, where are we? Right, the Instagram is up and doing its thing. You can find it if you search for Thank You Snowboarding Podcast. Um, yeah, it's it's a fun thing. We're sort of posting up pictures of 
old videos, old snowboard mags, basically just anything that is of interest. Um, there was a good little kind of debate kicked off. I posted, I think it was issue nine of Snowboard UK, had a hard boot racer on the cover. And I thought that would be fun to post that and see what came back. And it did. It created a bit of a stir. Because basically, who would put a hard boot racer on the front of a snowball magazine in 2023? No one is the answer to that question, in case you were wondering. And the fact that the UK... I mean, I don't know that a hard boot racing picture has ever been on a, the cover of a snowball magazine, apart from that one time. And the fact that it was a British magazine that did it, I think, is pretty cool. Because, I mean, for a lot of people, hard boot riding was and might still be the best way to get down a hill. And certainly with the renaissance in carving and all that stuff, then why not? Why not? We should embrace all these things. We shouldn't fear the hard boots, as Becky talked about her mega flexes. Um, she's recently, since we did the interview, she recently posted up some stuff she'd found in her mum's, I think she was clearing her mum's, loft out or something and found some old bits and pieces but she didn't find her mega flexes sadly but she did find her plate bindings and a pair of burton flex bindings and they were the ones that i wanted when i started i thought they looked badass so yeah so yeah the instagram is up and running so if you want to find that as thank you snowboarding podcast on instagram uh the youtube channel we've been sticking some more movies up on that which brings me to the track at the start of the show obviously neil young's um heart of gold from the seminal classic movie the garden by volcom um there's not a lot to be said about this film except that it entirely encompasses snowboarding at the time and i would say still it's still the benchmark for which snowboarding is presented to the world. It's a just just a masterpiece for the music, the pace, everything about it. It's just it's the one. I know we've done two Volcom movies already in this little section, but this is the one that needs to be seen, really. So yeah, it's up now on the Thank You Snowboarding YouTube channel. I had it on a DVD and I ripped it. Um, entirely not my copyright and I think I've put that up on there as well so it's not us it's entirely Volcom it's them that own it but uh, yeah go and watch it and either relive those times or discover what snowboarding looked like and basically what snowboarding still looks like to a lot of people so yeah that's cool uh, as I mentioned at the top, I'm going to be going to Adrian Corrigal's house, the Snowboard UK cover star, issue one. Apparently he's found that outfit that he was wearing on the cover. If you look at our Instagram, you'll see the cover. It's up there already. Um, and that's a fun thing. So I'm going to be going there. The other interesting thing is that he built a house on Grand Designs. So I'm pretty stoked to be going around there to have a bit of a nosy and see what see what that looks like, given that I quite like making stuff and... I think building a house is possibly in my, uh, must be on my bucket list at some point. I think I'd like to build a house. That would be cool. I quite like my houses at the moment, but certainly I wouldn't mind building one. Uh, yeah, where else are we? Um, snowing in the Alps. I know it's snowed a lot. It's possibly warmed up a little bit and it's only snowing up high now, but either way, Pretty good early season conditions. So if you are umming and ahhing about a little pre-Christmas trip, then do it. Pull the trigger, get yourself some kit and get out there. And talking of getting some kit, obviously this show is supported by the wonderful Snowboard Asylum. And so if you are after kit, these guys have got more knowledge than possibly any retailer possibly in the world. There's probably a few shops in America that have the same depth of knowledge, but certainly I would say across Europe, nobody knows snowboarding like the guys at the Snowboard Asylum. They are on it and they know what they're talking about. So if you are after any kit, go and see them. And whether or not this podcast is supported by them, I would still say the same thing. They have 
looked after British snowboarders since the beginning. Um, I'll find their first advert in one of the magazines, which I've got. So you'll see how far back they go. Their roots are in snowboarding. It is snowboarders for snowboarders, and that's worth supporting. So please do. Um, I don't think we've got anything else. Next week, we are going to be talking to a guy called Graham Chalmers, who flew under the radar quite a lot, but certainly carved himself out a pretty crazy career early on in snowboarding. Um, We've got loads of other interesting conversations coming up. And yeah, it's such a fun thing to be doing this. And I really hope you are enjoying these conversations as well. And whether it whether you know about some of this or whether you're new to the sport and just wondering like what the hell we're talking about, basically it's just a, an excuse to talk about snowboarding. And I hope if you are new to the sport that the enthusiasm and the energy and the love comes across and makes you want to do it more. And if you do want to do it more, then please do get in touch at th- uh, thank you snowboarding at gmail.com. Tell us your story, maybe why you're getting into it, or if you've rediscovered it in recent years, or even never left and still smashing the dry slope, or whatever it is. Get us in touch, get in touch and send us your story. It would be massively appreciated. And if I'm honest, would fill out this section and give us some more content. So do get in touch. It is appreciated. Thank you, snowboarding at gmail.com. Yeah, next week with Graham Chalmers, a brilliant story talking about going to Alaska at the King of the Hill and shooting guns and all that kind of stuff and how he managed to get there. Um, until then, look at our YouTube channel, check us out on Instagram and keep it real, obviously. And uh, yeah, as always, thank you, snowboarding. Peace.